Wow, well for the last few weeks the uh, world has had Olympic fever. Every two years we collectively turn our attention to sport events that the rest of the time we totally ignore. I'm guessing that come November very few of us are going to be checking the international standings to see who's top ranked discus thrower or watching YouTube clips of race walkers in action. But our interest in the Olympics goes far beyond national pride. I think it's more than that. It's an inner, inherent fascination with the athletes themselves. We're drawn to the nobility of their personal struggle, their competitive fire, their total sacrifice of body, mind, and spirit. An Olympian works for years, decades in some cases, for a moment of glory. For those lucky enough to get the gold, they know that when the whole world was watching, they were the best. Honestly, it's hard for me to relate to an uh, Olympic athlete to have that kind of focus, the regimen of training every day for hours at a time for one specific area of master, mastery. I ran a track in high school. I was a, a triple jumper, a hurdler, a long jumper, and yet my coach was often frustrated by me because I only did what was expected in practice, and then I headed home, and he was very frustrated by that because he thought I could be a lot more if I just would practice more. However, I was interested in other things, drama, lip-syncing, magic, movies, church, hanging out with friends and family. I'd do the minimum, check the box because it was fun, and I liked participation in the meets. But I couldn't relate to those competitors who poured their everything into finishing first, no matter what. During the Olympic season, we put the champions on a pedestal, literally, and for good reasons. Michael Phelps, Laurie Hernandez, their performances were astonishing. They deserve applause. And what comes next for them? Well, Phelps is riding off into the sunset with a record number of medals. He will eventually slide into the banquet speaking circuit. He'll always be recognizable. But I doubt he'll ever experience the kind of adoration he's enjoyed through swimming. And we start out this morning looking at Jesse Owens' accomplishments in the 1936 Olympics. When we think of famous Olympians, he is the gold standard, pardon the pun. But did you know that when he returned after the 36 games, Jesse Owens stumbled in transition to the real world? In the area of racial prejudice, he was reduced to athletic stunts, like racing horses, just to pay the bills. He struggled financially, declared bankruptcy, and worked for a while as a gas station attendant. Quick search of the web reveals countless sad stories of former Olympians disgraced by legal troubles, addiction, or embarrassing attempts to remain relevant. Rulon Gardner, the Greco-Roman wrestler who dominated the uh, 2000 Sydney Games, retired from his sport, plunged into depression, and gained over 200 pounds. At 475 pounds, you may have seen him on The Biggest Loser, a show he abruptly walked away from in the middle of shooting. Judo champion, two-time U.S. Olympian, uh, coined the phrase POSD, post-Olympic stress disorder, to describe what he calls, quote, sickeningly mundane nature of his life after returning to civilian life. Greg Luganis, widely considered to be the best diver in history, struggled to find his place in the world after retiring in 1988, he battled depression for years and attempted suicide on several occasions. Figure skater Debbie Thomas, who competed in the 88 games, is out of work and lived in a bug-infested trailer with a man who has a history of domestic violence. Some of it directed her. She was quoted as saying that she didn't have enough money to pay her own phone bill. She's a former surgeon and Stanford graduate, but somehow couldn't make ends meet. She started a GoFundMe campaign to help raise money to get out of poverty. Due to her living condition, she lost custody of her son and has been divorced twice despite being a surgeon. These sad stories of bankruptcy, substance abuse, and depression are commonplace amongst retired Olympians. And the cause isn't too hard to find. When, you, when your identity is tied to your performance, 
and your performance hits its pinnacle when you're very young, it's no wonder the fall can be swift and it can be steep. Ski racer Diana Roth, who won the gold in the 94 games, shared the frustration of peaking at age 26. She said, quote, It's like being taken up to the highest mountain to see the view, and then you're brought down, never to be there again. After the Olympics, I really struggled. I missed being exceptional at something. But this condition isn't unique just to Olympians, is it? Perhaps we aren't pursuing medals or world records, but the collective condition of most Americans is that our worth is determined by our performance. Maybe for you it's grades rather than sports. Many of you felt the burning desire to come in first in the GPA competition. I think valedictorian might be Latin for gold medalist. Or maybe it's not a balanced beam that you compete on, it's a balanced sheet. Accumulation of personal wealth, business success, setting a new sales record can be just as thrilling as setting a world record. Coming in first is seductive. Andrew Carnegie said it this way, The man who comes in first gets the oyster, the second man gets the shell. I have to admit my own battle in this area. I love the attention that comes from being on the stage. If fear of public speaking is the most commonly held phobia, what's wrong with me that I can't wait to get up here? In my heart, I know I'm on a mission. I'm calling from God to do what I'm uniquely created to do. But if I'm not careful, I can quickly slip into performance mode, start looking for that jolt, the adrenaline rush, or the ego boost. Is there a way to redeem our innate desire for competition, to perform and to accumulate? If he who dies with the most toys still dies, what's the point of it all? Well, we know the pinnacle of each Olympian's experience isn't crossing the finish line or seeing the judge's score. It's the medal ceremony. We witness the scene a hundred times, but it's always emotional. With great dignity, the medals are draped over the neck of the champions. They're given a beautiful bouquet of flowers. They stand at attention. The flags are raised. The orchestra swells and the national anthem plays. The competitor's eyes well up with tears, and that's the moment. That's the dopamine hits these athletes that they're desperate to reclaim. What if I were to tell you that I know a way that any of us, normal folk and Olympians alike, can experience a medal ceremony that will blow that one away. Today on Clickbait, we're going to see how one genius life hack can bring you and I incredible, sustainable, and eternal wealth. Let's dive in together. The Bible actually references the Olympic Games several times by the Apostle Paul in describing the way in which we should live our life to find purpose and meaning. To do that, I think it's helpful to understand that when most of us make decisions in life, we have a matrix that we go through. We ask ourselves two questions before we push through something, before we sacrifice for something. First question is, is it worth it? Second question is, will it be worth it? As we begin to do the cost-reward, we say, before I invest in this, before I think about that, before I pursue this, is it worth it? Is there a reward for the cost I'm going to give in? And sometimes we say, if immediately I'm not having enough reward, will the reward be worth it later? And of course, with the Olympians, the years of sacrifice, saying it may not be worth it all the time I'm giving up with friends, with relationships now, but it will be worth it if I can make it to the Olympics. But this shows up in almost every area of our life. Think about with temptation. Every time you come to temptation, whatever the form of temptation is, you ask yourself, is it worth it? to keep my integrity versus get the quick shot? Is it worth, in this moment, keeping my innocence rather than the passing pleasures of diving into a relationship that I know I shouldn't? 
Every time you're in temptation, you're asking, is it worth walking the straight and narrow when it seems like everyone else is having fun on the wide and broad? Think about when it comes to patience. Every time you're about to let your anger take control and the adrenaline rush that comes, it's fun getting angry, isn't it? Does your anger, I've never had the fun. Yes, it is. There's a fun of telling somebody how it is and letting people know it happened. And there's adrenaline rush. But in that moment, you're saying, is the adrenaline rush of, 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 of bursting forth and telling people how it is? Or is it worth swallowing my pride? Is it worth calming my nerves? Is it worth getting some perspective? And in that moment, you're weighing the cost analysis. Oh my goodness, if I lose my temper again, if I lose my patience again, will the cost to my relationships, to my marriage, to my kids be worth it? Is it worth, in the same way an Olympian trains himself, trains herself physically, buffets their body to prepare for the final reward, is it worth training our minds, our anger, our patience, or even our tongue for the reward before us? Shows up in all kinds of areas. What about persevering? We ask ourselves, is it worth it, right? Maybe you've been through chemo. You've had friends who've been through chemo. And you know that as you're heading into those chemo treatments, it's like, oh my goodness. The next few weeks, the next few months are going to be miserable after I take this pill, after I go through this radiation. But you're saying, but it's worth it. I'm going to persevere through this because I'm getting years to my life back. Because I'll get to see my grandkids, right? You're asking yourself, is it worth it? Doesn't feel like it now. Will it be worth it? I hope so. Those of us who have a tendency to exaggerate stories, you, you, every time you go to tell a story, you got that decision, right? Is it worth making the story and make myself look a little better than I am now, even if I lose a little bit of, oh my goodness, the details are a little fuzzy whenever Chad talks. Fear. Many of us spend our life in fear and we say, you know what, because of my fear I feel secure. There's a safe reward of saying, I'm not going to step out too far, I'm not going to start my own business, I'm not going to go that direction. And so that fear becomes our safety net and we say, it's just not worth it. And so we never really step out to grander purposes and grander visions because we're always doing the safe thing. Some of us have chosen to be a victim. And though we were victimized, we've made our identity being a victim. Because being a victim means I don't have to take responsibility for I act that way because of what happened to me. I don't have to take responsibility for forgiveness because of what happened to me. I don't have to do the hard work of digging into untangling some things that happened to me because I'm a victim and that becomes my identity. But what if there was a freedom, free from fear, free from victimhood, free from exaggeration, free from being controlled by your anger or being controlled by your appetites? This idea that the Bible describes is the idea that if you knew for sure, I mean for sure, not wish maybe, if you knew for sure that you could have a great reward, if you knew for sure you could have a great reward, you and I would make sure we were making record-making decisions. If you knew for sure it was worth it, if you knew for sure there was reward, if you knew for sure that taking these steps and making these decisions, that there was a great reward for it, that far surpassed whatever the momentary pleasure was of the dopamine high of getting angry or losing control, if you knew there was a great reward for sure, then you and I would make sure, as we're looking at our individual decisions in life, that we are making reward-making, record-making decisions today. And the Bible describes this with three tests 
It's a very fascinating passage and a very fascinating topic that is rarely talked about in church, but explains several moral dilemmas or, or complicated dilemmas that people have in approaching Christianity. These three tests are ways in which Jesus and Paul affirmed that there is a reward ceremony, a great reward for each one of us that buffet our bodies, that train our bodies, that organize our life and prioritize our schedules toward God's priorities and God's reward. The first test is described in this passage in Corinthians. It's called the foundation test. Paul says, the most important thing is that you build your life to prepare for the medal ceremony on the right foundation. He said, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. And immediately we're offended. No other foundation? Here's this sort of narrow-minded Christianity saying there's only one foundation you build your life on, and that's Jesus and his grace. And as modern people, as skeptics, we say, what, what about Buddha? What about Muhammad? What about all the other religions? How can you say there's no other foundation? How can Christianity say that there's one foundation to build your life on that God will reward? That seems offensive. That seems exclusive. That seems incredibly narrow-minded. Well, let's think about that for a moment. First of all, I think it's helpful to understand that all truth claims are exclusive. When I introduce myself to you and I say my name is Chad, I'm immediately saying my name is not Bill. Right? And it's not just Christianity that makes truth claims. All religions, all philosophies make truth claims. When Hinduism comes and says that every problem in your life is caused by karma, that is a truth claim. And you're not going to talk a Hindu out of karma any more than you're going to talk a Christian out of Jesus Christ. So the question is not... Is this an exclusive truth claim? Of course it is. All truth claims are exclusive. The question is, is it a true truth claim? And how would building your life on this foundation produce humility and produce the kind of life that God would reward? Well, one of the things that makes the message of Jesus radically different from every other religion and every other philosophy is this. Every religion is essentially a do-it-yourself plan. You work hard enough, and then God either rewards you or he doesn't. Maybe, wishfully, you hope for the best. Christianity is not a do-it-yourself plan. It's a done-for-you plan. And because of that, you don't get into heaven based on what you do. You get into heaven based on what someone else did for you. And that creates incredible humility. Because I know that on my best day and my best accumulation and my best resume of, of my whole life, I am never going to be adequate to get into heaven. That's deeply, deeply humbling. On the other hand, religion says if you work hard enough and do set the foundation of your life on your own performance, you will be able to maybe get into heaven. So there's no certainty there. But two, what happens is when you build your life on religion, you end up either arrogant or fearful, self-righteous or guilty. Let me show you how. Because it's all about what I do, and some days I have a good day. Oh, my goodness. Have you seen the good things I've done? And now the more good I do, accumulating more and more good deeds, the more and more self-righteous I get. The more and more I look down on other people because of how good I'm doing. I get frustrated other people aren't trying as hard as I am. I look down on those people who don't have the kind of parenting I have. Now, I don't say it out loud, but it's going on in my heart. And what happens is that pride and arrogance and self-righteousness, building a foundation of your life on good works, ends up sabotaging itself. Because every good thing I do pours it, baptizes itself in pride and arrogance and ruins it. 
Or, for those of us who are honest, we set these standards, we build our life on our own foundation, and then we realize we can't live up to our own expectations, let alone God's. Instead of struggling with self-righteousness and pride, we struggle with guilt and shame and fear. I'm never going to be good enough. Every time I get a chance to do it again right, self-centeredness comes in there again. And so we bounce back and forth between self-righteousness and guilt. Pride and fear. Fear that God's not going to accept me. Fear that God's mad at me. And so these foundations, though they can help make you a better person, they ultimately are a foundation that's always insecure. Versus the grace of God is a foundation that says God accepts me fully and completely right now based on what Jesus did. And upon that foundation of security, I know I'm going to heaven. I know God loves me. I know that my main identity doesn't come from what I do, but from what he did. It's out of that humility I begin to build on that foundation a life that I say, I want that competitive spirit. I want to win. I want to be rewarded. But ultimately, it it, it rescues me from the pride of building it on myself. The other thing that's unique about Christianity is that Christianity says that it's not a philosophy or religion, ultimately. It's It's an act of history. That God came into history through Jesus and died for us. And so you can check it out. Either it's true or it's not. It either happened or it didn't. So you look into history and say, was there a man made Jesus? And did he claim to be God? And did he do the things that God would do if he was there? And then you, you, you wrestle with that. It's either true or it isn't. But if it's true, if God came to earth through Jesus, then you've got to wrestle with that and say, well then, oh my goodness, if God came among us, and if I can be accepted based on what he did, not based on what I do, what would my life look like if I built the foundation of my life upon that? Because what the Bible over and over again says is if you build your life on the foundation of grace, it will produce humility in your life. It will produce a motivation to want to please the one who made you pleasing to him. Now, if I told you today, all right, here's what I want you to do. Instead of building your life on the foundation of good works, which are good things, but ultimately won't produce uh, the, the kind of reward you want, I want you to move your house, move your life, move your decisions from this foundation to the grace foundation. You might say, I don't want to move. I like my foundation. It's quite frankly worked out well for me so far. Why would I do that? Why would I move there? Imagine a boss or government or company tells you they want you to move. They want you to relocate your business, your house. They want you to move from this foundation, which is good, but they say, but but ultimately it won't last. It's got some insecure foundations. It's in a hundred-year floodplain. You see, but I like it here, and the chance of a hundred-year floodplain hitting in my lifetime is low. I'm not going to move, right? But imagine three years, five years go by, whatever the tax incentives offered your business, whatever the reward, it doesn't seem real until you're living in Louisiana, right? And suddenly everything in your house gets destroyed. How many people in Louisiana, if they could get in their flux capacitor and their DeLorean and go back a year ago and say, you got a chance, there's a flood coming, you need to move your house, move your life, move your business to a secure foundation. How many of them would say, if I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, of course I would have moved, right? When the same way God comes from the future and says, I want to tell you in the future how I reward, what I reward based on. I reward based on grace. And here's why. Every good deed you do based on grace You're not doing nice things for poor people so you can improve your resume. You're already accepted by God's resume. When you're building your life on your own resume, you're doing good things. But yes, you're doing good things, but you're really using the poor person. You're using the good deed to make yourself feel better. There's an inherent 
self-centeredness that derives this kind of competition. There's an inherent other-centeredness that says, I don't need you to get into heaven. God got me into heaven. And because he prioritized me when I didn't deserve it, and I want to prioritize other people the same way he did it to me. Both may look the same, but totally different foundation. So the question is, is it worth switching foundations? I remember my dad and I went to Sturgis, a big motorcycle rally several years ago. And on our way up, we stopped through uh, Wisconsin. And in Wisconsin, uh, my family used to own, extended family used to own a, a house there in La Crosse. And so we went there as a kid. We used to go fishing there as a kid. And, and I remember, because I went there the first time when I was really young, and we'd step out the front door and it took like 50 steps to get to the water. I came there when I was 10 years old, came out the front door and it took me 10 steps to get to the water. Because it's right on the bend of the river where barges will turn and they have to gun it to make that 90 degree turn. Well, they gun it right at the spot where our house was. So five years ago, my dad and I are coming through lacrosse, And as we stop by, I say, hey, can we stop and see the old house? He goes, oh, that's a great idea. Can't remember exactly where it's at. We take some turns. That's it. We're on the right road. We pull up to the road. We get out. We walk into, you know, somebody's yard trespassing. And uh, as we as we get there, I'm like, this is a, well, this is, where's the house? Dad's like, it used to be there. What happened to our house? I guess the foundation eroded and it floated down the Mississippi. Must be somewhere near New Orleans about now. Our whole house was gone because the foundation eroded slowly over time. Last week I got a chance to see a CEO of Ford, former CEO of Ford who did the turnaround, uh, Alan Mulally. And as he was describing taking over the job of getting Ford from where it was to where it is now, he knew they had a foundation problem. He's picked up uh, at the airport to go have the meeting uh, to prepare to whether or not he wanted to take this position. And the first thing he noticed is they picked him up in a Land Rover. <laughs> he, he heads over to the corporate headquarters, and as he pulls in, he notices all the executive parking, level after level after level. Not one Ford product. And he realized, we got a foundation problem, even we don't believe in our product. And so part of his turnaround efforts was saying, we got to relook at our foundation and say, if we don't believe in the product, we got to change. And of course, that's where the turnaround came, a major rehauling and uh, re-engineering of the whole company. But it started with the foundation. The Bible says the same way, before you get to the good works you want to do, and and God wants you to do good works, you got to have the foundation grace so that... Coming from that place of security and identity in Christ, in God, in grace, you're choosing to please others, not use people to pad your resume. So the foundation test, what are you building on? What am I building on? The second test is very fascinating. It's called the film test. And this is where he says, if you build on grace, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, whatever you build your life on, whatever you prioritize your life on, look what it says. Each one's work, work's very important, our good deeds, our generous lifestyle, will become clear for the day. There is a day coming, a reward ceremony is what, what Paul describes it as. There's a day coming in the future, and what that day will do is it will make your work clear, because it will be revealed by fire. We'll get into what fire means in just a second, because it doesn't mean what you think it means. There's coming a day... Think of your life like a a film strip. And you hold that film strip up to the light and everything becomes clear. 
that God will hold up your life to the light and like a piece of film, everything becomes clear. What your real motivation was becomes clear. Oh man, my real motivation? What was really driving you? It's not just the good stuff becomes clear, but everything becomes clear, the good and the bad. And on that day, when everything is revealed, God says he evaluates you on three things. Each one's work will become clearer, which means, number one, our motives. Not what we do, but why we do it. Do you do this out of an expression to give back to me the way I gave to you? Or are you doing it to earn your way into my kingdom? Totally different motivation. Two, God does evaluate what we do. The quality of the work. The quality. How well did we do what we did? Did we do it with a half effort? Did we give sort of, God, I ignored you most of my life, and I, I sort of wanted a little, 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 so get me into heaven, but then I didn't express that in a way to the, to the purpose I have in my life? What is the quality of the work you did? The quality of how you took the resources and the time given to you and leveraged it for my purposes. But not just the quality, also the quantity. What sort of work you have is what Paul says. What sort of work? What's the quantity of it? How often did you prioritize other people versus yourself? How often did you, were you motivated to say, like an Olympian trains for the athletes, God, I want everything you have for me. I want great reward. Jesus says you can have a little reward now and have other people patting you on the back, or you can have a great reward later. By things done for others, done in secret, where your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. And in that day, Jesus says, you will have great reward from your Father. Because he will look at the quality of what you've done, the quantity of what you've done, and the motives for what you've done. Now, this solves a problem, because for many of us, what we struggle about Christianity is, if everybody can get in, then everyone gets the same thing, and that doesn't seem fair. That the deathbed convert gets the same thing as Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says everyone gets into heaven by the same foundation of grace, but everyone is not rewarded the same. So that deathbed convert does not get the same reward. Yes, he's in heaven. That's a huge reward. But there's a much greater reward for those who live faithfully, who cared for the poor, who cared for the needy. Which means that when you're caring for somebody in hospice, when you're taking care of a special needs son, and the moment of, wow, I feel good about myself because that's long gone. In the trenches of hard work of service, in the trenches of hard work of working with addicts, the hard work of helping somebody get back on their feet and they question your motives and, and, and you're like, I, I don't just, I'm not feeling real good about myself right now. You see, the greater reward is that God sees what I'm doing and he will reward me for honoring my parents when they are not being very honorable. God will reward me for caring for the poor when they're actually accusing me and their entitlement is stealing all the joy out of this moment. You say, but I'm not going for the reward of the person. I'm going for the greater reward of God. And there will come a day that God will put our life up on the big screen. Imagine if your life today, just, just your last week, we put up on the screen. Let's let that sit there for a second. Everything you did for the last week, including your motives, your heart, your conscience, what was on your mind is up on the big screen. It will become clear. It will be revealed what sort of life you're living. But the Bible says that there will come a day that God will make clear everything you've done. And he will reward you for all the good things you've done. The others focused, God-inspired things in your life. And there's going to be times that you're surprised. Oh my goodness, I totally forgot about that. And God's going to say, I want to reward you 
for what you did in sixth grade. Sixth grade, yeah, I took notes. I want to reward you for what you did in eighth grade. I want to reward you for those first couple years of marriage and you really had to adapt to your spouse and you guys were much different than you thought. But you held your tongue and you talked respectful and, and, and you didn't hold on to bitterness. And I want you to know, I remembered, and I want to reward you for loving your spouse the way I called you to. You're going to say, if I knew I could have got all this for eternity, I might have swallowed my pride a few more times. Yes, you would have. Which is why I sent Jesus and I sent Paul to go tell people, there is such a reward. And in that moment when that person seems so ridiculous and how they're seeing the world, God says, I've got a reward. I'm watching how you relate. I'm watching how you interact. I'm watching how you deal with people. And I have a great reward for you. I'm often amazed at how often I take the easy way. Certainly this last seven years, the joys of being a father of a special needs son has been incredible. I mean, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And yet the reward on earth does not outweigh the cost. So I look forward to a great reward because Jesus says that whatever you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. So when I'm still changing diapers, which I am at seven years old, I'm changing the diaper of God. That's weird. But that mindset shows that every, shows that every person you interact with you're serving back to God. And so I'm going, God, I'm, I'm, I'm training you. I'm probably training you again, God, and you're not doing a very good job. But I'm still in it. We're still changing diapers, God. But I want you to know this is my act of service to you. And honestly, God, you told me to pursue your rewards. And I hope I'm being rewarded for this because you tell me to pursue your rewards. We go to Chick-fil-A about four times a week because that's uh, Quinn's favorite thing. So I get up in the morning and say, chicken, I want bread. So we'll go, and I, I use the app now so I don't have to get him out of the car. And, and so he'll come up to the curbside, and, and if I hand him a, ch- a chicken nugget by himself, he'll eat all the bread around it and not eat the chicken. So every day while we're driving, because I'm taking him to camp, I'm taking his chicken, and I cut it in thirds, and I hand him a third at a time. Because if I cut him a third at a time, he'll actually eat the whole thing. So for seven years now, I, every chicken nugget, cut in thirds. And again, I'm reminded, God, this is the kind of attention... I'm trying to serve my son. Not only is he a good dad, but I'm trying to serve him the way you serve me. Because the way which you had to adapt to me by becoming a man, I think I can adapt to my son by doing a few little chomps. In fact, it's interesting, the last couple of, uh, six months I've been trying to get healthier because I realize this over the years as Quinn gets um, bigger, I, my, this body can't handle it. So I'm trying to get stronger. So my son and I are going through insanity, and I hate working out. I hate that man on insanity who tells me about a core. Don't say the word core one more time. But I'm motivated to do something I wouldn't do otherwise because I want to be the kind of dad that can serve a special needs son and say, God, I'm buffeting my body in the same way I'm trying to buffet my soul to do the kind of work you've called me to in this role that you have for my life. I heard John Maxwell speak this last week. I'm not usually a big fan of his, but he had a great quote that struck with me. He said this. He sort of paused for a moment. He said, Everything in life worth doing is uphill all the way. You want a good marriage? You can have an okay marriage. But if you want a great marriage, it's going to be uphill all the way, wrestling with your motives. God, I want to love her the way she needs to be loved. I want to love him the way he wants to be loved. Even though it's not my instinct, I want to talk in a way that's not my instinct. But God, I want to love them by adapting to them the way you adapted to me. It's going to be uphill all the way. But a great marriage, a great family, 
a great company, a great reputation, it's uphill. Everything worth doing is that way. And God doesn't promise things to be easy, but he says, but I will reward you greatly for doing it. So what if your, your, your film was put on the screen behind me? What would your motives be? Would you find that you're motivated by grace and security that motivates what you do? Or are you actually motivated by guilt and shame? And so you do the good things you do to try and cover up the guilt and try and weigh the balance. Or does it come out of a place of security? That's what God wants for us. And then our last test he alludes to here in that verse we looked at, which is the fire test. Is that at the end of your life, God is going to test by fire all the things you're doing. He says, look, there's a fire test. And there's going to be a fire. And that fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. In other words, there's different types of work. There's works based on, uh, on shame and, and pride, and there's another kind of work based on grace. And so there's a fire that will test what kind of works you have, what sort they are, what motivated them. Look, it tests your works of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures the fire, he will receive a reward, a great reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so by fire. Now, when people see fire, they go, oh my goodness, this is hellfire and brimstone, Baptist church, I remember this, or oh, I remember going to, to, to catechism and learned about this. There's, this has nothing to do with hellfire and damnation. Nothing. Paul is addressing right now people who are followers of Jesus, and he's using a metaphor of a, of a refiner. And so what he's doing is he's saying that, imagine this is your life, okay? Our life, there are going to be ways in which we fill our lives with other-centered, God-inspired good works. Now, there's going to be a whole lot of other stuff in our life that's not so God-honoring, not so inspired. And so, what God's going to do, like a good worker of steel, is you've got to get the, the crud out. And so God says at the end of your life, he's going to burn away everything that was not done from self-grace motivation. He's going to burn away the betrayal and the unforgiveness and all the stuff that you and I have in our life. He's going to burn away the bad stuff so that what is left, he will reward us for. And so think of it this way. God says, I'm going to add a little bit of eternity because the only things that come into eternity are the things that are motivated by grace and other centeredness. And because the only things that come into my kingdom are things that are motivated by grace and eternal other-centeredness, I've got to burn away the self-centeredness without setting off the fire alarm is what you have to do. <laughs> so, as you look at your life, what did you fill your life with? And what was the motivation of the things you filled your life with? And if God added a little eternity to your life, then what will happen is whatever level that you filled your life up with grace-motivated, other-centered motivation, God will burn away everything else. And as he burns away everything else, you begin to discover something. You begin to discover that some of us will get great rewards because we filled our life with an awful lot of other-centeredness. Others of us, there'll be a lot of stuff that we said we did for the other person, but we really did for our own selfish motivation. And God said there will be a process for those who are followers of Jesus where he will burn away Everything that was not done with good motives. And with that burned away, nothing bad will come into heaven. It will be a place with no betrayal and no anger and no pain. It will be everything we ever wanted to be. 
But when you come into eternity, not everyone gets the same reward. Again, we're not talking about heaven and hell here. We're not talking about hellfire and damnation. We're talking about a process by which Christians go through what's called the Bema Seat of Christ, where God burns away all the bad motivations, all the bad junk, and you can see some people will have a lot left over. Some people will have a little less left over. And God will then reward us. Look at all the things you did. Look at how you cared for your parents during their final years. Look at how you didn't just give a little bit of money to the poor. You actually invested and put huge amounts of your income. And though nobody else knew about it because you kept that secret, I want to reward you. And he rewards you and rewards you and rewards you. And your eternity is incredible because you've been rewarded for an incredible life of focusing on other people. How you loved on your wife, how you cared for your kids. Others of us are going to be surprised. Because we got a little bit of Jesus in us to get us to heaven. But sadly, there's a lot of things. God said, I had so much more I wanted to reward you for. There was half of your life got burned away. Half your life was really about yourself and building on your own. I still want to reward you. Oh my goodness, I still saw the way you did this and how you interacted here. I want to reward you for what you did right. But on that day you're going to say, if I knew then what I know now, I would go back and tell myself, reprioritize your life so you can have the great reward that lasts. So that's what this fire is. This is three things we note in the fire. Number one, some people will suffer loss. That's what it says, right? Some people aren't going to be rewarded the same way. Though they both got into the foundation of grace, that one person didn't live their life in a very selfless way. Other people will be rewarded more. Isn't that great? So if you're competitive, if you like high scores, if you like rewards, God says, awesome, I got rewards for you. I built you to be motivated by rewards. And I'm telling you, the rewards I have, you can get a little reward here on earth or a big reward in heaven. And I see all those things done, and I want to reward you greatly for what you've done. I used to tell my kids, God's got a whole room in heaven filled with gifts, and he can't wait to give them all away. And sadly, because of the way most of us live our life, he's going to have a whole lot of presents he didn't give away. Because we didn't prioritize our life to capture the greatest rewards God had for us. But here's the cool thing. Even the person who suffers loss, Paul comes back to this foundation of grace. He says, but even he who suffers loss will be saved. But he himself, the one who suffers loss, will be saved. He'll be delivered. He'll be getting to heaven because he didn't get in based on what he did or didn't do. He, he was saved or delivered or entered into heaven based on what God did. But through fire. <laughs> in other words, that person who really spent his whole life being self-centered, whole life being you know, consumed by victimhood or whatever, and his whole life got burned down. He still gets into heaven, but my goodness, what a waste of a life. Live for self when God had so much more in store. So if you knew for sure, for sure, that you could have a great reward, wouldn't you make sure today that you prioritize this school year? Wouldn't you make sure that you were going to make record-making, reward-making decisions to prioritize the very things that God wants to reward? And I want to encourage you this morning, that's what this year can be, to go for a goal that lasts. Jesus says you can go for gold or money that rusts or tarnishes, or you can go for an eternal goal that lasts. Never tarnishes, never wears down. In fact, he uses the metaphor of the Olympics. Paul says, if anyone competes in the athletics, speaking of the Olympic Games, he is not crowned, he's not rewarded unless he competes according to the rules. So don't you want to know God's rule book? Yeah, build your life on grace and build as much as you can to be rewarded in the next life. Because you can have a little bit now or a lot later. You say, well, I don't know, it's a nice story. I don't know if I believe any of this. Okay, let's just hypothetically. 
if you knew for sure there was a great reward in the future, and if you could come back from there and tell yourself, oh my goodness, what Chad said is true, what the Bible said is true. The three questions. If you're going to go for a gold that lasts, what risks would you currently take if you had a guaranteed reward? What orphanages might you build? How might you rethink your marriage and your attitude towards your marriage if God's going to reward you for how you treat your spouse, as Doug talked about last week? What risk would you take toward reorganizing your company to be even more philanthropic if you knew there was a great reward? Two, what trade-offs would I make if I had a guaranteed trophy? Because right now you're making trade-offs. What would you do if there was a guaranteed trophy? What trade-offs would you currently make? What decisions would you make with your integrity, with temptation, with perseverance, with how you tell stories, with how you organize and treat people if you knew there was a guaranteed trophy for the little hidden things? And what cost would I absorb now? I'm not going to have as much savings now. I'm not going to have as much sustainable income now because I want to put large percentages of my time and money into reward-making decisions and endeavors. What cost would you absorb now if you had a guaranteed asset later? I did a funeral, several of them this summer, and I always cry at all the funerals. I keep asking God to help me so I don't have to cry, but it's just it's always so sad to see friends. And I recently did a funeral, and what was so powerful about this funeral was this was a, a, a person who was incredibly other-centered, lived their life with unbelievable amounts of secret, selfless, financial, and time-giving to this city. And so at a funeral is where you tell those stories, right? So we're preparing just a fraction of the stories of the level of other-centeredness of this person's life. And as we were going to share it at the ceremony, the spouse came up to us and said, you can't share any of that. It's a funeral. No, no, no. One of the priorities was selfless, secret giving. We can get a little bit reward at the funeral, people finding out some of this stuff, but he wanted the great reward later, and I was shocked. I couldn't even talk about the generosity of this life at his funeral because he'd so devoted his life to the greater reward at which he's experiencing now before God. The Olympics, we get to see a lot of people compete. But one of the other benefits of building your foundation on the identity of God is that everything that happens, you're able to compete stronger and higher because of this grace. So you got to see our two divers that came in silver, and they're interviewed right after they got the, 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 the confirmation that they got the silver medal. And they discussed how building their identity on Jesus helped them win the race of life and ultimately win the silver medal at the Olympics. Let's watch. David and Steele, congratulations. David, you came to Rio with a gold and bronze from London and a whole lot of pressure. What does it mean to come out and medal here in the Synchro event? Yeah, I, I just think the past week, there's just an enormous amount of pressure, and I've felt it. And, um, you know, it's just an identity crisis. When my mind is on this and thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But we just know that our identity is in Christ. And we're just we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil, in front of the United States. And uh, it's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. You now have gold, silver, and bronze Olympic medals. How much does this free you up for the individual events? It does. It takes a lot of pressure off of me, but um, this, this never could have happened without Steele, without him pushing me, without him loving me well, uh, encouraging me, and my wife has just been a solid rock, and uh, I, I couldn't have done it without them.
on steel for you, your first ever Olympics, first ever Olympic event. How were you able to maintain your composure so well? I think the way David just described it was flawless. The, the fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace, it gave me ease, and it let me enjoy the contest. If something went great, I was happy. If something didn't go great, I could still find joy because I'm at the Olympics competing with the best person, the best mentor, the, just one of the best people to be around. Um, so God's given us a cool opportunity, and I'm glad I could have come away with an Olympic silver medal in my first ever event. Congratulations to you both. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being here today. I hope that this will be a year when you think about how to win the game of life. That you take that competitive spirit and it doesn't need to be demonized, it needs to be celebrated. And God said, take that competitive spirit in you, but win the game that really matters. Win the game. Prioritize your life to the things that get not just a little reward, which is nice, but a great reward later. Thanks for being here for our series. We appreciate it. We're going to start a brand new series next week called Thought Bubbles, talking about how to improve our relationships and our lives by what it is we think about. If you came prepared to give financially today, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi. Thanks again. We'll see you all next week.